Okay, thanks very much. So I've learnt a lot this morning and uh, I'm going to try to uh, put into action some of the things I've learnt. So I'm going to start off with an apology and a show of respect. Um, I am not uh, an expert, indeed I know very little about religion or about conflict. Uh, and my, I've made many claims in the past and uh, I'm not sure of them and I'm exploring and revising my views. Um, but Steve asked me to give this paper, and it's going to be a philosophical paper. It's not a psychological paper. It's not a sociological paper. It's about the way in which we should aim <coughs> to construct our society. And the target of this paper is what place should religious values have in the formation of public policy and social institutions. Now, just to situate this within a broader perspective, this paper is a, 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 written by uh, Ingemar Persson, uh, and me, and is a part of a broader project looking at the, what we call the, the dilemma of the 21st century. I mentioned before um, the great changes that have occurred very, very quickly in terms of rapid technological advance and globalisation. Yet our basic psychological and moral dispositions have remained essentially unchanged over the 200,000 years or so over which we've been uh, on the planet. And this has created a dilemma. First of all, it means that we will have access to massively more powerful technology as individuals than humans have ever had before. And I completely agree with you that this collision of curves that Pinker describes is really uh, more hypothetical than real. Um, we only need to think uh, about the probabilities in the future where it only takes one out of seven billion people to access uh, the technology to manufacture smallpox to realise that the, uh, the chances of catastrophe are quite significant. And indeed it reminds me of Francis Fukuyama after the fall of, of the Berlin Wall who said he wrote a book called The End of History and he claimed that democracy was the, now represented the final form of political institution and, and we were at the end of history and, and I think it's as naive to believe that the world is becoming safer as it is to believe that democracy is the final point of human political evolution. Uh, and the second problem that we face today is one of globalisation, uh, of being able to affect uh, people in vastly distant places in the world and further into the future. And our psychology is not set up for these global collective action problems like climate change or, or, or global poverty. So we, we've written this book called Unfit for the Future, uh, The Urgent Need for Moral Enhancement. And one of the problems we highlight there is the, the ways in which democracy, liberal democracy, exacerbates these kinds of problems. Um, and in particular, its tolerance, its multiculturalism and tolerance to a wide variety of um, religious and non-religious moral views. So this paper is really just a, a micro-paper within that project to look at what place should religious values have uh, in, in a secular world and secular public policy? Now, the first point to note is that, and this is one of my concessions, is that because our morality evolved uh, in order to promote cooperation and survival of small groups, and it involved proscriptions against harming in-group members, requirements for honesty and cooperation within groups, and so on, many of the modern values that we have have both religious and secular origins. 
Uh, and when I talk about religious values, I mean distinctively religious values, values that can't be grounded in anything other than an appeal to a particular religion. Uh, now, I always tell my students, I think one of them is here, to obey the 90-10 rule. And the 90-10 rule is to spend 90% of your paper on the, the original contribution you have to make and 10% on the background. But inevitably people do it the other way around. They spend 90% of time going through the relevant background and 10% on what they have to contribute. So it all gets compressed into the last five minutes. So I'm going to reverse this. And I'm going to leave the introductory remarks that we have in the paper because I think um, both, the first speaker, both the first two speakers really very, very vividly covered these. The, the first section of this paper was going to be on the origins and the evolutionary origins of religion and its particular features, in particular its hyperagency and appeal to supernatural phenomena. The second part of the paper uh, looks at the ways in which religion can be both inducing of tolerance within groups but inducing of intolerance to, to other groups and the particular place that has within a liberal democracy. And the third part of the paper, which I think has also been adequately highlighted, is we don't believe religion is going to disappear anytime soon. So we're stuck with a world where religion in many forms will persist. So the question we wanted to address is what place should those values play in a secular liberal democracy? Now this, this section is called the requirement for sufficient secular justification. So we should expect that religion will continue to influence societies for the foreseeable future and we should ask what attitude non-believers should take to religious claims to regulate social life. In a previous section we discussed the limits of religious tolerance in the sense of the conditions in which believers of a religion will be tolerant of people who do not share this religion. But now we want to discuss, or I want to discuss, the limits of re religious tolerance in another sense. To what extent should religious views be tolerated, be legally permitted to be publicly expressed and practised by secular people? To begin with, we must recall a distinction um, that we alluded to earlier in the paper between the purely, the putatively factual claims of religion, such as the properties of a god and so on, and its precepts or norms which are justified by reference to these factual claims. While we do not think there are any kinds of religious um, factual claims that shouldn't be tolerated, that is, your belief in God or belief in certain supernatural phenomena, we do think that matters stand differently with respect to religiously justified precepts, what you should do to each other. And the reason for this difference is, firstly, that there is a closer connection to non-verbal action in the case of precepts than there is in the case of supernatural beliefs in the existence of some god or other. And secondly, it's justifiable to be intolerant of and indeed legally prohibit certain kinds of actions which we will now elaborate. Now, a supernatural belief might cause believers to act in certain ways, e.g., for example, to dislike and as a result to persecute people who dissent from belief in that supernatural entity. But to determine whether this is so would require empirical investigation into certain psychological and social conditions. By contrast, a precept to the effect that some pattern is or is not wrong justifies a certain type of conduct, namely commission or omission of that behaviour. It takes no empirical investigation to psychological or social conditions to ascertain that there is a link to behaviour. So the link to behaviour is more intimate in the case of moral precepts. This could be put um, by saying that you are irrational or inconsistent in some way if you don't act 
on the precepts that you accept. For example, if you believe that it's wrong to have extramarital sex or to eat pork and you nevertheless do it, you are inconsistent in some way. That is weak-willed. In contrast, if you hold some factual belief uh, that may or may not be true, the only action that would have some semblance of being inconsistent would be the verbal action of denying the belief. Thus, religious beliefs, as beliefs about the nature of the world, are far more loosely connected to behaviour than religious norms about how we ought to behave. And so we should be more tolerant of those kinds of religious belief. Now, in the, in the case of some kinds of behaviour, it is as obvious as it could be that there are some are so seriously wrong that they should be prohibited by law. For example, the torture or mutilation of innocent children for fun. Or indeed, you might add, the execution of people for infidelity. Then it is justifiable to be intolerant of people who deny that this precept is wrong. For instance, we are justified in being intolerant of people who deny or doubt that it is morally wrong to torture babies or to keep slaves. This is because it is so obvious that the act of torturing babies to death for fun is gravely wrong that people who do not realise this must be seriously warped. There simply cannot be any justification for this kind of act. Since the link to action is so close as regards precepts, there's a great risk that people who deny this precept will go ahead and torture babies for death or fun, death for fun, or that they will influence others to engage in this behaviour. But this is certainly a kind of behaviour that we shouldn't tolerate. It should be prohibited by law and punished. Public expression of the view that such forms of behaviour are not wrong should also be legally banned since they purport to justify horrendous behaviour. And I'm not suggesting that any religion has required the people or encouraged people to torture babies for fun. This is a philosophical example, but I'll come to some more real-life examples presently. Now, this holds irrespective of whether this view is religious or non-religious. Thus, religions which purport to justify, say, human sacrifices or genital mutilation of children and young people should not be tolerated. In the case of many types of conduct, and in this case we have to get off the fence, uh, in, this, in this sense a broad, very broad tolerance of any kind of religious claim is, is misplaced. In the case of many types of conduct, it is, however, debatable whether or not they are wrong. This may be because the behaviour is at most slightly wrong. A case in point might be, might be the action of having someone hold your place in the supermarket queue while you finish your own shopping. In such cases, we should tolerate the expression of both the view that it is wrong and the contradictory view that it isn't. So there are many cases <coughs> where it simply isn't clear whether something is wrong or is at least grievously wrong. But suppose it is claimed on some religious ground that such a behaviour which seemingly causes little, if any harm, should be legally forbidden. Then we should not accept this claim unless we are also given a non-secular, a non-religious or secular justification, which by itself is sufficient. That is to say, we should demand a justification whose factual parts, non-evaluative or non-normative parts, describe only empirical facts, that is, facts of everyday life or scientific facts. Schematically, a simple case of moral reasoning could be represented as constituting a major or evaluative or normative premise. That is, for example, an act is morally right if and only if it maximises happiness or is commanded by God, etc. And a minor factual premise, this act maximises happiness or is commanded by God. So you get a conclusion that this act is justified. Uh, 
Our suggestion is that this reasoning qualifies as secular if and only if the minor factual premise concerns nothing but empirical facts. The factual premise, this act is commanded by God, does not meet this requirement, whereas the factual premise, this act maximises happiness, does. Notice that it is not necessary for us to demand that the normative premises do not contain any non-empirical concepts, such as being commanded by God, for the constraint on the factual premises ensures that no conclusions could be inferred from such normative premises. So if believers in some religion propose that it be a law, say, that women should wear headscarves or do not wear trousers or short skirts in public places, this should not be accepted unless some sufficient secular justification for such a law is supplied. It might be thought that it is easy to satisfy this requirement, for couldn't religious believers simply claim that women should or shouldn't dress in these ways because some book, such as the Koran or the Bible, says so? What a book says is, after all, just an empirical matter. But the hitch is now that this is not a justification that could be plausibly called sufficient. In other words, a normative premise which says that we should not do what some book says we should do is not plausible unless we add, this book is the word of some moral authority. But if this moral authority is thought to be God, or a God, if the underlying normative premise is that we should do what God says we should do, the argument no longer satisfies our requirement, since the factual premise that some book is the word of God is not empirical. However, if it is uncertain whether or not some piece of behaviour is wrong, it need not be because it is a borderline case of wrongness. It could be seriously wrong. This could be because its wrongness is dependent on factual claims whose truth is disputable. Consider the moral belief that our continuing to emit greenhouse gases at the current rate is wrong. This belief is likely to be based on, factual, on the factual claim that the emission of greenhouse gases by human beings cons contributes greatly to an amount of such gases in the atmosphere, um, which is beginning to have deleterious effects on the climate. There seems to be a growing consensus among experts that this factual claim is true. This consensus might suffice to justify a law uh, that prohibits human beings from continuing to emit greenhouse gases at the current rate. All the same, there is not enough certainty to justify intolerance of people who deny or doubt the justification for such a law, such as, for example, right-wing economists and libertarians in the United States, climate sceptics, because they deny or doubt something, doubt the underlying factual claim about the deleterious effects of the current rate of emission. In other words, climate deniers or doubters are not on a par with those who deny or doubt that it is wrong to torture babies for fun. When religious arguments come into play to settle a moral issue, it often seems to be the case that behaviour in, in question, if wrong, could be seriously wrong, such as, as in the case of climate change. Consider, for example, such issues as euthanasia and abortion or indeed infanticide. It is controversial whether active euthanasia and abortion are wrong, but if they are, they could well be so wrong that they should be legally prohibited. To show that this is so, appeals are often made to religious reasons. But in our view, no religious reason could by itself be sufficient to justify legal prohibition. Sufficient secular justification is necessary. So insofar as moral and practical precepts are underpinned only by religious or supernatural claims, their credibility will be a function of the credibility of the latter. And in the earlier section, we showed how uh, there was virtually no reason to believe those supernatural claims, and I think you've made that point earlier. 
Um, as long as it seems to believers that the supernatural claims of their religion have strong credibility, i.e. That, that is that there is a justifiable certainty of their truth, it might seem justifiable to them to be intolerant of people who deny or doubt precepts which prohibit actions that are gravely wrong in terms of their religion. Nonetheless, it could not really be reasonably claimed that this denial or doubt is analogous to the denial or doubt that it is wrong to torture babies for death or fun. At most, it could be analogous to the denial um, or doubt that it is wrong to emit greenhouse gases at the current rate, that it is a case in which toleration of contrary views is called for. However, due to the progress of science, the epistemic credibility of the supernatural claims of a religion has dropped far below this point. It has dropped, we claimed in the earlier sections, to a point at which purported religious justifications for moral norms must be supp supplemented by secular justification, which itself is sufficient. If some religion instead purports to justify conduct that according to such a secular justification is seriously wrong, for example, persecution of non-believers, this religion qualifies as a legitimate target of intolerance. It might be objected that we overstate the assurance that we can have that supernatural claims of religions are all false. Our knowledge of the universe is not that complete. Now, it is not part of our present aim to argue that there are no gods or supernatural beings, but we think that it has to be conceded that if there are any such beings, progress of science has made them increasingly transcendent, by dissociated from the workings of the world. Contemporary gods cannot plausibly be thought of as, a constant, uh, of as constantly interfering with the course of nature in the manner of the gods of thousands of years ago. It follows that it will be harder to justify the practical and moral precepts by reference to them. In, in, in some ways, uh, the existence of such gods would be irrelevant. Such justification seems to presuppose that the supernatural beings in some ways connect with the world in order to make their will known. For instance, the Jewish practice of male circumcision is justified by reference to a covenant between the Jawi and the Jewish people, the Christian opposition to abortion by reference to God's ensoulment of the embryo at conception and so on. In any event, if a prescription to circumcise or a prohibition to abort is to be accepted, then to repeat, a sufficient secular justification for it must be provided. In the case of male circumcision of newborns, such a justification might refer to matters of hygiene and health, such as the lower risk of contracting HIV or developing penile cancer, or the health benefits to others, such as the lower chance of passing on human papillomavirus to women, though this could scarcely justify performing the operation without anaesthetic when these are readily available. In the case of abortion, it could refer to the loss of a worthwhile future life, though this will, would not work as regards to severely deformed fetuses, and in any case, this loss would have to be weighed against the autonomy of the pregnant woman. <coughs> Although this is not the place to argue for it, we do not believe that any of the given religious justifications will do. But some of these practices may have been justifiable in social conditions in which they arose. <coughs> Circumcision of newborn boys when hygiene was difficult to maintain, the ban on abortion when Christian communities were still small and persecuted, or when there was a general shortage of people because of wars, famines and epidemics. The fact that these practices received religious justifications has, however, enabled them to survive, though the conditions of life that originally made them justified no longer obtain. These conditions bring out the inclination of religious people to stick to the precepts that have become associated with their religion, in spite of the fact 
that they have, become, they have been rendered obsolete by changes in conditions of everyday life caused by radical social and technological change. A main cause of this inclination is probably that their religions were imprinted upon their minds already when they were young children and very malleable, and as already indicated, we believe that such religious indoctrination should not be allowed. Re religious doctrines should not be taught to children until they are old enough to begin to assess their plausibility compared to contesting views. Just as children should be 18 before they are allowed to drive a car, drink in a pub, or attend a, a legal brothel, so too they should be 18 before they are allowed to enter places of strong religious indoctrination, even if these, places, these are places of worship for others or long-established educational institutions. Even if a certain religiously-based practice should not be legally permitted, it may, however, be permissible to express the opinion that it should be legally permitted. For instance, even if one thinks that kosher halal slaughter should be forbidden, now that more painless methods of slaughter are available, one might still think that it should be permissible to express the view that these practices are not wrong. This is because this practice, though wrong, is not so harmful that it is beyond doubt that it should be legally, uh, should, it should be legally permitted. <clears throat> but the advocates of this view should be exhorted to supply sufficient secular justification for their proposal to kill animals in these ways. In contrast, which one should not even be allowed to express the view that honour killing and human sacrifice should be permitted because these practices are so obnoxious that it could not be seriously doubted that they should be illegal. There are limits to freedom of expression. So even if circumcision of small boys should not be permitted, it does not follow, of course, that boys or men should not be allowed to undergo circumcision later in life when they are capable of giving their informed consent. It's a familiar liberal thought that if we have a clear understanding of what we are doing, we should be permitted to do things to ourselves that we should not be allowed to do to others. For instance, people should arguably be free to use harmful drugs, <coughs> smoke tobacco, though they should not be allowed to make others use these drugs without their informed consent or expose them to secondary smoking or promote them among children. Similarly, we should allow Christian homosexuals to refuse to live out their sexuality openly, even if this makes them unhappy and frustrated. Likewise, we should allow adults for religious reasons to decline vital medical treatment, like blood transfusions, though this will cause their death, and even if their refusal is irrational, even in religious terms. Since religions have dwindling epistemic credibility, no conduct should be legally permitted or prohibited simply on the ground of religious considerations. There must be a sufficient secular justification for this permission or prohibition. Sometimes, when some religiously justified conduct should not be legally allowed, it should be permissible to espouse publicly the view that it should be legally permitted because the conduct does not belong to the most harmful kind, but then its advocates should be exhorted to supply sufficient reasons in secular terms for their view. There should, however, be an extensive freedom to act in accordance with purely religiously based precepts in self-regarding actions or in the private sphere in which one's actions directly affect oneself. So the central idea of this claim is that one can practice uh, religion privately in any manner that one wishes, but when it comes to forming policies, uh, social policy and the law, any justification will have to have a sufficient secular basis. So to give an example of the sort of area that would, would be of concern, there was a recent German case of a couple who I think married and were having sexual relations, and it turned out that they were somehow related. 
and uh, and in fact they were prosecuted, and I believe the man was placed in jail uh, for for incest. Now, for for incest to be a jailable offence, one would have to point not only to some religious proscription against incest, or that basis in law, but to some significant secular justification, such as harm to somebody or the the um, the creation of severely genetically abnormal children. But in this case, there was no evidence of any such harm, and I, th I believe it's probably based more on the proscriptions of incest inherited from uh, from from various religions by way of the by way of the law. Um, other examples that we've mentioned include euthanasia, uh, abortion. All of these practices, increasingly now in the U.S., we see fundamentalist religion uh, causing states to revoke um, permissive abortion laws purely on religious grounds, uh, and this, I think, fails the sufficient secular justification test. Um, the teaching of creationism is an example of something that would be permitted on this view because it relates purely to factual views about the origin of the earth and doesn't uh, doesn't relate to how one one group should treat another or how how people should behave. Um, but those views that derive those policies which derive, for instance, with respect to homosexual marriage and so on, that have purely secular, purely religious justifications, should not be permitted in a secular society. So that's the original claim or the provocative claim. Do you want me to go through the, the earlier parts of the paper that lead up to it or do you want to throw that open to question? Uh, well, we've got 50 minutes of time before the next... Uh, okay, well, let me, so let me give you the, the reasons why we propose this in, in terms of the evolution of religion and the current state of religion. So since human beings are designed to live together in groups, it is to be expected that their rich mental repertoire includes a disposition to impute mental states, perceptions, beliefs, desires, emotions, and so on, to their fellow beings. We can never obscure, observe anyone being in a mental state, except ourselves. In the case of others, we only observe the outward signs of them being in mental states, such as their talking, writhing, grimacing, screaming, smiling, and so on. The exercises of our innate disposition to impute mental states modelled on what we experience in our own case to others spontaneously makes us believe that they are in appropriate mental states when they exhibit such signs and are in the appropriate external circumstances. For example, when they grimace when being subjected to a painful stimulus. These imputations help us to explain and predict the behaviour of our fellow beings assuming, of course, that these fellow beings really are in something like the mental states we attribute to them. Now, this disposition to mentalise is apparently so strong that it works over time. Since prehistoric times, mental states have frequently been ascribed for explanatory purposes to natural things and processes, trees, rocks, rivers, winds, and we saw some lovely pictures before, that lack such states. Of course, sometimes the real inanimate causes of natural happenings are obvious, <coughs> otherwise we couldn't learn to make tools, prepare food, etc. Obviously we do not then think that anything is magical is involved in these sorts of operations or events. So it is not the concept of an inanimate or physical cause that is missing in primitive societies, but in pre-scientific society 
the causes of many natural phenomena like diseases and meteorological events, such as hurricanes or floods, were by and large unknown, and our inclination to supply mental justifications and explanations steps in to fill the gap. Hence, animism is a characteristic of primitive religion, that is, the religion of preliterate people. Also, if this tendency to impute mental states is not held in check with regard to dead people, this could result in the belief that the minds of these people go on existing after death. Like animism, a belief in the afterlife seems ubiquitous in preliterate human societies. We suggest then that this is the overtime work of an innate disposition to attribute mental states that is the root of the supernatural elements of primitive religious belief. This hypothesis is well suited to explain that primitive religions typically involve personalising matters that are not personal, explaining natural phenomena in psychological terms so that the surrounding nature appears like an extension of the social environment in which people live. Such psychological explanations are likely to have great appeal because they apparently provide human beings with the possibilities of controlling natural processes that would otherwise be largely uncontrollable uh, in the pre-scientific era. If human-like minds are responsible for these natural processes, it appears that they could be influenced in a way our fellow humans could be influenced by prayers, sacrifices and other expressions of gratitude. Also, such supernatural expressions, explanations, are likely to linger once they, once they have established themselves, since they are not readily falsifiable, as supernatural beings cannot be expected to be observed, and the imagination has free reign to add ad hoc assumptions to avoid falsification when some mistaken predictions have been advanced. The imaginative products of this overtime work about disposition to mentalise might have had less religious significance if humans had not had the capacity to enter ecstatic, hallucinatory and trance-like states. Such states can be induced by dancing, fasting or taking drugs. In these states, people seem to break through the bounds of their individual selves and make contact with something supernatural. The experiences had in these states could breathe life into and lend credibility to what might otherwise seem more like unreal figments of the mind. Scott Atron described as the absurd before. They could also make religious rituals more emotionally moving and bind the participants tightly together. People who have a special talent for entering into such states and so could be presumed to be more knowledgeable about the supernatural, such as shamans, often became social leaders and enjoyed high standing. The religions of hunter-gatherer societies do not seem to comp comprise any other precepts, but more recent religions also characteristically compromise more mundane precepts, moral precepts about how to treat our fellow human beings, about sexual conduct, diet and so on. In contrast to the supernatural beliefs and precepts, these mundane precepts are not essentially religious, as I said before. They could be parts of a secular code of conduct, since they deal with humans and other inhabitants of the world. But these mundane precepts are justified by reference to the supernatural beings believed in as their commands, and thereby receive a stronger authority. Since these supernatural beings are typically endowed with great powers, they could amply reward those who behave well by generous gifts in this life and the next and punish those who act badly. Therefore, the religious justification gives moral precepts great authority, and this discourages people from challenging them. This sort of justification of mundane precepts is probably not needed in hunter-gatherer societies since these societies were small, around 100 people, and these precepts are comparatively easy to enforce on the people themselves. 
The fact that due to the smallness of these communities, breaches of these precepts are unlikely to escape detection and punishment by fellow human beings provides enough deterrence. But when human societies grew larger and effective legal sanctions still had not been developed, the idea of supernatural beings keeping an eye on us for compliance to codes of conduct could function as an effective social deterrent. Usually the religious justification of moral precepts is not very convincing, logically speaking. It's not made clear precisely why the gods would be interested in issuing particular commands ascribed. My, my favourite one uh, from the moment uh, comes from Genesis, which uh, uh, I'm sure many of you are much more familiar with than I am. So in, in uh, Genesis um, 6 and 7, book 6 and 7, God is so appalled by human weakness, wickedness, that he wipes out nearly all life on earth. After the great flood, God promises never to do this again for the peculiar reason that, as the Hebrew puts it, um, the motive force of man is evil from his childhood, which the Midrash interprets to mean that we are already wicked in the womb. It's not entirely clear why God didn't realise this before killing everybody. So... We, we see here, I mean, in many cases, the, uh, the justifications for many religious precepts are uh, hard to fathom. Okay, and so it's a, it is easy to find justification for these precepts in more mundane circumstances. For instance, it is easy to find a justification for the practice of male circumcision in the difficulty of maintaining personal hygiene in a hot and dry climate. Um, the thought readily suggests itself that religious, religions that survive are the ones that succeed in absorbing norms which promote the good of societies in which they develop, and that this absorption increases the authority of the absorbed norms by giving them a supernatural sanction. Against this backdrop, uh, against the backdrop of this religious backing, it will seem dangerous to break these norms, so social cohesion and stability uh, are likely to result from religious justification of moral norms. The fact that all trace of religion has never been wiped out in any human society, despite some determined attempts, for example by some communist regimes, indicates that religion performs some important enduring psychological and social function. On the personal level, it can provide comfort and cons consolation um, by promising an afterlife, by declaring that in spite of all evidence to the contrary, injustices, famines and epidemics, nature is ruled by a just and benevolent power, and at least... Uh, or at least by powers which can be influenced by the same means that we influence our fellow human beings. When a single religion has become dominant in society, it can perform an already indicated function of promoting social cohesion, binding members of society together, making them more loyal and prone to do, ser do services to one another. Thus, religion uh, is for the good of the members of society in general, though some, the religious leaders, might gain more from it than, than others. In a dangerous and unpredictable world, human beings have a need for the security of belonging to a greater unity. And at least in pre-scientific societies, religion can fulfil that need more effectively than any other cultural device by its appeal to supernatural powers with more control than humans have over the world. The case of Judaism shows how, a religion, during a, how, shows how religion during a long period of time continued to perform this function of unifying a people even in the absence of any state. When a religion becomes widespread in a population, it tends to be more stable in that population, in particular if members of that population do not have much communication and commerce with outsiders who question their religion. 
there is a strong tendency to conformism um, in humanity to adopt the customs prevalent in society in which you're raised. This is especially true of religion because of the awesome authority it receives from its supernatural forces. Um, sources. So when is religion conducive and not conducive to tolerance? Um, it might be feared, rightly as we shall suggest, that the other side of this social unification is a <laughs> an intolerant attitude to people of different religious <laughs> persuasions. In a world in which there is not as, not as much contact between people of different religions as there is in the model world, this might likely not be a decisive drawback. But in a globalised world, this makes religion liable to create extremely dangerous conflicts, especially if there are weapons of mass destruction. Moreover, since many contemporary societies are hugely and significantly multicultural, it is most unlikely that all citizens of any of them will accept the same religion. The citizens will rather belong to different religions, and because of the progress of science, many will be secular, believing in no religion whatsoever. This suggests that today religion is more likely to cause friction than harmony within societies, as well as between them. So it might be feared that today religion is socially more harmful than beneficial, more of a seedbed of conflict than of harmony. Robert Wright has, however, suggested the contrary might be true. He puts forward a law of religious tolerance to the following effect. Do you want me to? Uh, yeah, I think just if you can wrap up. I mean, one of the, I mean, there are several features that make uh, religion that um, make religion more problematic than than other um, justifications, in particular the belief in an afterlife. I mean, imagine that. Uh, in the middle of last century, um, in the Cold War, the Russians had believed that they would be rewarded with eternal paradise if they commenced a, uh, a nuclear war. And this, this would, would have been far more troubling than simply the idea of a communist ideology. So many of the features of um, appeal to the supernatural make it more problematic to deal with um, people who have a strong appeal to this. Now, m much of this may well be le levelled more at religious fundamentalism than religion broadly construed. Um, but as we argue in the next section, we don't believe that either religion or religious fundamentalism is likely to uh, diminish to the state of extinction anytime soon, certainly not within the next century when we'll face the greatest challenges uh, that we probably have faced through any century in human history. Finish there. Great. so much. I'm sure we have many questions. So, um, yes, please begin. This is just a, a factual question, really. What's your evidence for the claim that since prehistoric times, human beings have had disposition to mentalise? Well, I mean, you, you, you're probably better at answering that question. There's uh, all sorts of different kinds of things, but one is uh, influence from... Uh, Everything from making the kinds of tools that require team effort and cooperation to uh, sort of abstract art, which now dates back to 40,000 years old, and the fact that people are finding mental states in children and false beliefs at six months old. Yeah. But that's now, that's not some prehistoric times. No, but the, a, a good inference is that if you find it universally um, in infants, it's probably been around since the species began. Oh, thank you. Uh, Steve. Um, so I want to try and see if I can 
sneaky a religious justification in the public sphere under your radar, Julian. <laughs> so, and, um, I, I know the chances of this are low, but I'm going to try anyway. So, Dun Scotus has uh, a curious story. He, um, he thinks that there's two categories of people who can get into heaven. Christians and people who are circumcised. He's, he's specifically concerned about Jews. Um, they get into heaven because they made a covenant with God. So um, it's a kind of a backup thing. Um, I mean, strictly, he thinks they should convert to Christianity. But he's kind of like, well, you know, they didn't get an opportunity to hear the message, or maybe um, some of their leaders distorted the message or something, and they didn't get a fair chance, then um, here's a second way in. And um, I don't think he just, I mean, he, he just sort of is mostly concerned with Jews, but I think I imagine he would consider other people who've made a special covenant as um, being allowed into heaven as well. So, now, so the, the religious justification for circumcision is now not like the health grounds or anything, it's just that there's some chance that this will get you into heaven, even if you're not a Christian. Now you say, well, the progress of science has reduced that to the epistemic credibility of uh, religious precepts to uh, almost zero. But I want to pick up on the word almost, because uh, so uh, it's like Pascal's wager thing. Well, gee, even if it's just a very, very little chance, it's heaven, it's eternal happiness. So the chance of this actually being true has to, you know, it can be exceedingly small, and it still looks like a really good justification. So, so on that, so on that view, we should we should stop giving people blood transfusions altogether because the Jehovah's Witnesses might be right. And given that there's an eternal life, it won't no, matter no, if people die a bit, bit earlier now. So, uh, why, why why not? I, well, I think the many gods objection to uh, oh, well, you can't be Pascal's wager then um, that. Uh, I think in practice, this you know this this sort of argument is just not going not going to work. I mean, the, 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 I mean, if you were taking something completely benign, like I don't know, say say some say instead of circumcision, it was placing a small tattoo on the sort of shoulder of. Something. I was circumcision is pretty. Well, you know, there are people who have lost their penis. Uh, being through botched circumcisions, and there's you know recently a case of, I think six kids in the U.S. who got herpes. Now they, this is because r- rabbis are, are doing this in a non sort of surgi- you know, standard surgical way. So you might say, well, you know, if only very good you know plastic surgeons perform this procedure under proper sterile conditions, there's virtually no risk. But there's always a risk. There's a risk of death. Um, there's a risk of unless you don't give anaesthesia. But if you so, for example, a friend of mine just had his son. He's a professor of neurology. You know, met him, Paul Tillman. He had his son circumcised because there was a medical problem of, you know, the foreskin was too tight for the child to urinate properly. Now, that child had an epidural. An epidural has a non-zero um, chance of causing spinal cord damage. So whatever you talk about, unless it's something as benign, benign as just having a sort of cosmetic tattoo, but, but then it's going to be a risk. So you're going to say, so, oh, it was worth head. that child losing the penis because there's a, there's a non-zero chance of the child entering eternal paradise. Basically, yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I don't think that survives the sufficient secular justification mm-hmm. test. And I think you have to bite the bullet here. I and mean, part of this... Part of this um, this work is to identify a secular set of values by which we should organise 
uh, society and it'll inculcate children. Values like the ones that you mentioned before of well-being, uh, freedom, equality, non-discrimination, tolerance, these sorts of things um, are things that we, we should, you know, try to, to encourage. And you can't say, well, you know, any view, we, we should just, we should remain neutral <laughs> to what the correct moral views are or indeed views about um, the eternal afterlife. I think you, you have to, in terms, it's fine if you, if you, as an adult, you decide, well, I reckon there's a, you know, one in a million chance I might get to heaven if I have a circumcision, <laughs> and that's your basis. But it's not the basis in which, you know, children and incompetent people should be treated. Gina? So, um, you, you said, or probably you mostly skipped over, but you summarized for us, um, suggested that the epistemic credentials of religious belief have dropped to virtually zero. Um, but a whole lot of people believe in religion. Um, so it seems like... That's why I said it was a philosoph- philosophical paper, not a psychological paper. <laughs> I hear you said. Anyway, keep going with this. Okay. Um, so, so a whole lot of people believe in religions. Um, and so they're either really, really stupid, or they disagree with you about the, the epistemic standing of their beliefs and different epistemic standards, they just have exception of justification or whatever is available, whatever. Um, there's a whole lot of them. And I, I'm inclined to pursue the second group rather than just something not really stupid. So we have these two different, at least two different, um, large scale, very grand, possibly metaphysically informed epistemic um, conceptions of the world, the, the secular one and this other one. And these people have to live together in the world. And your, your principle of sufficient secular justification seems to disqualify anything coming from the other view that isn't, um, isn't coincide with your own view. Basically, if you can also give a secular justification, okay, it gets admitted. If you can't, if you can't also give a secular justification, it's flat out disqualified. And this seems like a really, really stark and, and probably unworkable way of, of these, these two different grand epistemic metaphysical worldviews having to be together in the world. Um, so I guess I have two questions. I mean, that's a very big objection to make. But one is, is this workable? And two is, what's the justification? What, why, why, why do secular people get to just ignore, completely ignore, this totally different grand metaphysical worldview. Um, well, I wouldn't describe them as stupid. I mean, I think there are lots of explanations for why people continue to believe in religion that doesn't make it <laughs> likely to, be, or, you know, not really believing supernatural entities, for example, that make it likely that they exist, or that they have any relevant causal influence on the world. Uh, or that appeal to them has any relevant role in, in moral justification. So you, you need to, we are human animals. We've evolved in a certain way. We, we have a lot of biases and, and dispositions to act and believe in the way that we do. So it, it's, it's not a question of stupidity. It's, it's a question of, you know, why do humans believe, feel and act in the way that they do? And I don't think it's the fact that there are a large number of people believe in the existence of supernatural entities is, is any reason to think of itself that they got it right. You need independent reasons to, to support that. So, you know, I wouldn't describe, it, I wouldn't describe the phenomenon as, as one of stupidity, but the, the question is what do you do about it, I think is a very difficult one. Um, and I don't know what you do about it. I'm not sure that... Uh, and in some cases... Uh, you know, I think that I pointed to the example of Scandinavia before. I think if you take a, a firm directive role in a liberal democracy, you can shape the way in which people form their beliefs and the ways in which they're committed or not committed to religion. So it's not as if this is just an, uh, you know, an irresolvable problem. 
I mean, religion has declined in terms of its influence over public policy in certain parts of the world under certain educational, political frameworks. And the point is that that's, that's a good thing. We should aim for that. Um, and we shouldn't aim for a completely, you know, well, we want to encourage um, religious schools, we want to encourage diversity of education, we want to encourage everyone to, which is the current sort of multicultural dogma. Uh, and what's the justification? Well, look, you know, the Raelians believe that, you know, we were cloned from outer space aliens. There's this, why wouldn't we, if you took this view, say, well, you know, that, that voice should have a voice in the formation of public policy too, because, you know, we can't really tell whether there are aliens created humans or whether there's been... I mean, it's, it's just, I just don't think that is the way that we can deal with... And, sorry? That all of your argument only works if I already agree with you. Well, I, no, no, I, I agree with you. you. There are going to be people. There are going to be people that don't agree. There's no doubt about that. So, you know, the point is, well, what do you do about that? Sometimes you just have to disagree, and so, and you know, one view will win. Now, it may be that the sort of current democratic multicultural view will win, or it may be that we take a more more directed approach to a secular ethics. So, let me try one last one. <laughs> and then I'll back off. But so, it's, it seems to me like a really obvious competitor to your views, I mean, Rawls thinks that we have exactly this problem. People have dramatically different conceptions of the world. I was kind of trying to gesture at the way in which um, a comprehensive conception of the good might be linked to epistemic and metaphysical stuff. Anyway, but Rawls thinks that ultimately the way you have to deal with this is by looking for points of overlap. It's not by just declaring that, that, um, that moral conceptions only get accepted when they are accepted. Religious conceptions only get accepted when they happen to coincide. Well, with there, the are, there, are two, there are two separate issues. Well, there's, there were two. There's, there's two questions. One is empirical, and the other is non-empirical. The sort of non-empirical question is: is do we want to get to the stage where we can have adequate ju secular justifications for our policies? Right? Is that the goal? And I'm saying yes, that is the goal. There's a separate question: is what's the best way to get there? How how could we get there? And that's a psychological, sociological, empirical question. Now, it may be that the best way to do it is as Rawls suggested. Okay. Uh, unless Rawls is suggesting that you know, the, the, the goal that I've stated is not really the goal, which I don't think that he would have been. But it seems to me, and I, and, you know, I, I don't know anything about this, but I've just been in sort of the, the bad end of it. It seems that America is, is an example of the failure of a kind of Rawlsian approach in the sense that it seems to me, from, from the outside and being affected by it, that there's an increasing strong religious fundamentalist element that's increasingly having an influence over policy and far from convergence you're seeing divergence and and, and far from forming policies that would have adequate second you're going precisely the opposite way so but that's just a casual observation what you're what you're claiming is you're making a scientific claim that well, you know, I'm taking it to be a scientific well, well, if you think that the goal for the goal for you know, the world in a hundred years' time is that, you know, somehow we will manage to juggle, you know, claims based on belief in supernatural deities with, with other sorts of moral claims. I just don't think that's going to be the case. Because you, there are a lot of places in the world where there's huge divisions about the treatment of women, about the treatment of children and so on. And now, there's nothing to be said to those people except, well, let's just try to live together. So not only does it, not only does it involve a commitment to... 
relativism within a society involves a kind of commitment to global cultural or ethical relativism. And they, it, people are sort of often, people often take um, sort of this critique, you know, favourably when it applies to sort of fundamentalist Islamic um, countries, Afghanistan or, you know, wherever you want to pick, Saudi Arabia. But they, they fail to realise that exactly the same critique applies to the, the sort of dictates of Christianity because it's a really a world religion too. So if you think that there's something criticisable in, in the particular religious element of those practices and precepts, then you've got to question why we don't also look at the, look at the ones that's in the religion that's dominant in our society. But I don't think many people are going to say, well, you know, some parts of the world, women are stoned to death for infidelity, you know, um, you know that's just, you know, we, we can't really work out what's, what the right thing to do is and we've got to go through a process of, you know, what John Rawls recommended to eventually work that out. You know, just... Okay. Um, you're next. Okay, I'm just wondering how far you want to go to advance your secular views. So just for the sake of argument, let's assume that we have 100 countries or nation states in the planet. And your argument turned out to be very, very influential, that 5 billion people were persuaded by you. So 199 countries became um, secular liberal democracy along the line that you described. And there was one... Uh, country that remains to be religious, and there are uh, deeply religious people, intolerant of the secular view, living in that particular country. What would you th- would you say to this um, to this country? Would you, do you want them to convert and become secular, liberal, and democratic, or would you would you tolerate? Well, there's a guy called Tristram Inglehart, sort of. Yeah, yes, he talks about moral islands between, and he he was a ra- right wing, rabid libertarian. He converted to Greek to be a Greek Orthodox. He's very religious. And he thinks that the way in which you, this should run is you just have islands within the US of, of, kind of secular moralities and religious moralities and, and that these can just coexist. I, I, I don't think that's the case within a society like the US. I don't think that in the long term that's a stable arrangement. But it could be a stable arrangement uh, if, if, if organised in a different way. So if you have one country that uh, you know lives that way, that it may just not not just be possible for for the whole world to kind of progress in the same way. There may be islands of of um, secular and religious morality, and it may be a question of defence or protection and so on to to make sure that you know they remain apart or not influence not influencing each other heavily. But I don't believe that there's a there's any Injunction to save the souls of everyone on, on earth. I mean, if there was a country that, uh, you know, wanted to organise itself in that way, there may be nothing that we can do about that. I mean, the same is, for, you know, the example is sort of, we had this discussion about you know, um, homosexuals in the church. It seems to me that the church can set up whatever rules it wants. It's a kind of club, and if it doesn't want to have homosexuals being married within the church, that's his prerogative. What matters is that homosexuals can be married in the state and enjoy all the rights and privileges of marriage. Um, and that's what we should be protecting, not requiring the church to admit homosexuals. Let them do what they want. That's, that's their prerogative. Sorry, Lynn. Oh, so let me, let me... We have quite a list of names that have been taken <laughs> down. Is this a finger, like a very... Oh, 
No, it's not a very quick. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to put you at the um, bottom of the list. Anybody well, else who's one? There's there are <laughs> lots of you. So well, everybody. Right, international guest. Um, <laughs> hey, uh, um, the system's a system. Uh, so keep it quite brief, uh, if, if that's possible. Yes, in the background. Um, so you have a particular view of a secular democratic society, and you talked about um, certain. Um, policies that are acceptable or not in, in such society that obviously very um, subjective. Um, but clearly, as other questions have, have said, there, there are different views about what is what's right and wrong and how to run society. And the, and the atheist view, or particular atheist view, is still a, a belief. It's, it's just like any other religious belief. It's still a belief. So, Basically, you're just discounting everyone, everyone else's belief apart from your own. Um, and you know, you said that multiculturalism is is irrelevant, and only one view will win. But isn't this a, um, a description of dictatorship? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Shall I answer that? I've got the sense of the question. Shall I answer okay, it now? Yeah. Okay. Um, Quickly. And also, you seem to have a very narrow view of religion, a very static view also of what religion. Mm-hmm. Is and if you look at religious history, religions have always changed and adapted to um, to the society and the people that support them and to events. So certain things that you've um, talked about, like um, the, the use of religion in America, that, well, that's been um, influenced a lot by politics and not purely religious. And certain things like stoning their women in Saudi Arabia. Well, that, that's a debate within Islam that's being worked out. It's not a practice of Islam. So it's much, religion is much more complex than the static, um, narrow understanding of it. Um, so just on the question, and this is where I w- w- would differ with um, Professor Atran, at least as I understood the first. I think that the challenge is to identify a, a kind of defensible secular morality and I gave a talk in Brazil um, about 2002 where I showed a, f- a clip from Ingemar Bergman's The Seventh Seal where you see this group of people flagellating themselves uh, and chanting you know, verses from the Bible in an attempt to uh, escape the plague. And I said, you know, all through human history, a lot of terrible things have been done for the sake of ideologies. And if you're going to harm somebody, if someone's well-being is going to be compromised, you have to have a very good reason for that. So what are, what's something that is not purely subjective? It's well-being, human well-being. What matters to each of us is how our lives go, okay? how well our lives go, how long we live. Now, if that's going to be shortened or, or made worse, you need to have a really good justification. So utilitarians say that's the only thing that matters. But you don't have to be utilitarian to think that well, um, if, if we're going to harm people, uh, if we're going to cause harm or choose a policy that results in less people enjoying less good lives, we have to have a good reason for it. And, you know, I don't, I don't, think, it's, I don't think it's a good reason to say, my God commanded it, uh, or you need to have a very... So a starting point is simply to start off with saying, two, one thing that matters is human well-being, another thing that matters is human freedom, Okay. So immediately you've got, a, you've got something that everyone shares. It matters to everyone equally, regardless of their religion or no religion. So it's a great challenge today is to identify those very basic points that aren't just subjective. They're things that we can share as human beings. Um, you need to have a 
Well, I, I began by saying that many, many religions hold the same values as the sorts of things that I would think of. So it may be that there's a significant intersection and that we can agree on lots of basic human values. The idea of human rights, as I said, plucked out of the air to capture certain things that seem to matter to us. Um, that's been the focus for the last 200 years. I don't think it's particularly the best focus, but at least it's a starting point. Um, but it doesn't matter what religion you are. Whatever we can still have a discussion around human rights. That's an example of a kind of unit that what we've taken to be something, a common currency across all human beings. Now, you know, that's where that's what we should be focusing. I'm not saying that religions can't participate in that, but when you have claims that are distinctively religious that are not shared and can't be cashed out in that common com, common currency, then those that's problematic. And there are many parts. There, are, for example. You know, Catholic Church's opposition to the morning after pill or to, to contraception. That causes great harm to people. And, you know, you, and in some places it's been very effective at preventing that. Now, that's, that's an ordinary case where a practice has been grounded on a particular religious precept that. No, that's, that's your opinion, though. That's not your opinion. Okay, I'm going to. Yep, this is great. I think we, we have. Uh, I've articulated my opinion on that. Okay, virtues of being concise. So um, maybe I'll take two questions and then you can give a response to both so we make sure to get as many people a chance. So Janet, did you? I was just wondering whether to chip in on this latest one. <laughs> the, the problem is that there's no, just, this is partly Gina and partly you, there's no neutral position. A state actually has to allow people to have the morning after pill or not. I mean, no, it isn't forcing anybody who's religious to. And the point about a public debate is that there's a sense in which religious ideas can't enter it because the specifically religious ideas are the ones which come because that's what your scripture or your God says and doesn't make any sense to the people who haven't got your scripture or your God. If they're not that kind of view, if they're the sort that's understandable to everybody, then they come precisely from the kind that Julian's talking about. So I think there's a logical problem about what you're going to allow people to do, because you can't allow everybody to follow their own conscience. Because, I mean, just imagine the President of the United States trying to say the pro-abortionists and the anti-abortionists who want to kill the pro-abortionists could all follow their own conscience. It's just not a... It's just a logically possible position. So this is not saying we shouldn't have a debate about which secular views there are. It's just saying that as soon as you bring in a supernatural justification for them, you're out of the range of everybody else. That's Thank all. you. Okay, so we'll mm -hmm. take um, in the third row. Yes, you had a... Um, I just had a finger on what Steve was saying, so I will pass gonna... to someone else. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, so, Tony... Yeah, um, I agree with what the, the lady at the back there was saying, Gina. Um, just want to add something. I'll be talking about this a bit in my own talk, so I won't say too much about it. But uh, it's a bit unclear why you're so keen on secular reasons, apart from the anti-religious uh, rant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because um, 
you spoke about religious people not having, uh, having dwindling epistemic uh, credibility, and that looks like a kind of democratic reason. But the trouble with that is, as she pointed out, uh, it may have dwindled, but there's still the majority in most Western countries, or at least very chunky people to model. Uh, so it can't be that. Um, and then you said, view, reasons are not shared. And I think Janet said something similar. Well, there's all sorts of reasons that are not shared in a democracy. Uh, thank God, in a way, uh, if I may make a reference. <laughs> 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 this connection. Um, and uh, um, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of crazy thing, I think, to go into this sort of vaguely totalitarian restriction of reasons all the time. Um, because um, there are lots of reasons that people will produce in uh, advocating public policies of one sort or another that not only I don't share, I mean, I couldn't see myself coming to share, for instance, utilitarian reasons. I mean, utilitarians got into control. I feel desperately sad. Um, can't share their reasons. Can't even begin to share their reasons. Uh, Kantians, probably the same as a bunch of these. <laughs> Ethical positions, which are not religious, I think, in your sense. There's a big problem about defining religion, of course. Um, and also, there are uh, many uh, um, reasons uh, which um, uh, I don't think it's I don't think it's very um, plausible to call religious reasons, which have played a terrific part in changing the way we think about what political policy should be adopted. For instance, the range of ecological and environmental uh, arguments that have come up in many recent years, which uh, attribute an intrinsic value to the natural order. Now, not everybody agrees with that, but they've been very persuasive in various ways, and they've brought about various changes. Uh, the fact that a lot of us can't share them and reject them and so on, seems to me neither here nor there, if they're, you know, for allowing them to be in the debate. They ought to be in the debate. And if they win out, well, that's a democratic process. Um, I think, too, with uh, religious reasons, people always pick upon, you know, the crackpot ones, or the ones which are going to cause terrible harm. And, I, of course, I'd be strongly opposed to them being implemented, but that is, I'd argue against them. I wouldn't ban them from any other. Uh, but, but you should think of the, the, the many cases such as the slavery debate, in which the religious reasons were, were preeminently the reasons that a lot of the reformers put in the civil rights movement. Much the same was true. Rawls has a kind of manoeuvre for this, which I'm going to talk about tomorrow, so I won't press on with it now, but it's not a manoeuvre I find very uh, plausible. Uh, the other thing is, you know, identifying these secular reasons rather than religious ones. Lots of religious people, you mentioned the thing about uh, abortion, that God says, you know, soul is implanted from the beginning. Um, madly implausible religious reason anyway in my view, but that's not the kind of thing that religious people who are against abortion say by large. I mean what they say is something about uh, it's a person from the moment of conception or it's, um, what's Charlie's thing, uh, individual human substance from the moment of conception, something like this. Uh, now I don't think that most of those people would say that sort of thing unless they really have a religious conviction about it. But it's not what they say. The reason they give, which I think is entirely sincere, is this reason expressed in these philosophical terms. Um, do you let them get away with that? Uh, I guess you've got it, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of empirical in some sense, of course, it's philosophical in part. So I think this stuff about secular reasons is a mess. And I think when you keep talking about what will we do, and you've got to do something, you're talking about secularists secularist atheist like yourself. Now you're a great minority. 
<laughs> and uh, if, if you're going to get up and say, what are you going to do about it? I'm going to say, I don't even bother what you're going to do about it. <laughs> you haven't got the power. Um, so, uh, though you could perhaps have an insidious influence, so I'm prepared to contest with you. Thank you. Would you like to respond, or do you want to hear what more of your interlocutors have to say? Uh, well, I just, uh, I mean, I do think that you know, what you finished with there was exactly the point that we'll end up with. I think there's going to be... I, I, was, I was going to write this, this... The most insidious... I actually won't say this because it's being recorded. But um, <laughs> I, I, do think, I do think that you have to distinguish between religion and religious fundamentalism. And I think, yeah. you know, the religious... Like you, you and I share much more in common than we do with people who... Uh, than either of us do with people who are religious fundamental. Because we're prepared to, you know, listen, revise, engage in a, you know, yep. a process and, and be tolerant of the way in which each other lives and so on. That's fine. What you are seeing is a kind of division of religious fundamentalism. And that, I think there will be a war between the, the ordinary garden variety <coughs> religious person like you and me versus the religious... Because they're not going to accept the sorts of... And you're going to have much more difference with them than you will with me. I can tell you right now, because I'm, I don't care what you do with your life. <laughs> you know, I'm all in favour of freedom. So I, I, I think that I what you said you is... Do. You're just going to say... <laughs> <laughs> it, it will be, I think, a question of power, um, you know, in practical terms. And, and I think the, that you're actually on my side. Uh, more than you're on the religious fundamentals side. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's a race to the finish, so um, please, Liz. You'll pass. Okay, Scott. Okay, so if, if reason is not only to be a slave of the passions, then the only thing you seem to be advocating, although I agree with most of it, is that whoever reasons better, no matter how ridiculous their passions are, should triumph in the end. Yeah, well, I don't think reason is just a slave to the passions. So, I mean, I think that we have it... I mean, you used this term before. You said every, everything was, um, was, a, was, was a kind of sacralisation or every... every and now, I think there's a big difference between certain sorts of, of moral views, and I think there are, there are views that are objectively morally justifiable. The question is what they are and how we arrive at that, but I don't think that reason is just a slave to that. And I don't think... You know, if you did have that humane view... Okay. okay. Second thing is, appeals to religion are seldom simply appeals to authoritarianism, uh, to authority, like fundamentalists, literalists. Mm-hmm. They're very few. Religious propos- propositions are really pseudo propositions. They're open textured and they're subject to reframing. You just can't bargain them. You can't say, "I give up a little bit of this." So the way reason is used isn't to verify or falsify or substantiate a religious proposition or pseudo-proposition. It is how can you provoke a reframing of that religious proposition so that it's compatible with the mores of the other group. A good example is the Mormon church, where polygamy was first allowed by God, and then under a certain reframing, polygamy was no longer allowed by God. And that allowed the Mormons to uh, assimilate much better to, to, to U.S. society. So the, the relation between reason and the appeals to the supernatural or to thor- uh, religious authority are not quite the way you put it. That is, it's not just a third, very good. Take a concrete example, women. Uh, the position of women in Saudi Arabia or better yet among the, the Taliban, among the Afghans. So you find in the whole Fertile Crescent 
among Muslim societies that women have a similar position. Pretty rotten from the point of view of Western societies. If you go to the reasons for it, if, you, if, if people were able to enunciate the reasons for, the, for those things, they'd say, okay, we have patrilineal, patrilateral, bureau-local societies, so that all duties, obligations, and political power descends through the father's line. And if all reckoning of political, um, political politics, duties, rights, and inheritance are through the father's line, any doubt unto the upteenth generation on the woman, any doubt whatsoever about paternity, means the political process can be shot to hell. I mean, it really can be shot to hell. Therefore, even though we respect women and recognize all the wonderful things about women, there can be no doubt about our pedigree. And therefore, there can be no possibility for dishonor. And it's better to root that out, even at the price of the individual rights of a woman, than allow this to cause chaos in society. And you must remember that Afghan society has been a decentralized society that's lived without a leviathan for 2,000 years, and how does it manage to survive? So someone could offer that kind of reasoning and say, aha, this makes a lot of sense from this reasoning. It makes no sense to you because you have no. So what do you do? I mean, what do you concretely do? Do you do something like Hillary Clinton says, and we're going to change the position, which is what the, exactly what the Soviets did, Exactly, by the way, what the founder of modern Afghanistan, Amanullah, did when he liberated the country from the British. The people loved him. He went to see Ataturk. He saw the position of women was better than Turkey. He tried to change it and was kicked out. So it's a real hoary problem in Afghanistan, as it is in Saudi Arabia. Again, what do you do if the society is still tried and organized on that basis? Yeah, well, I mean, there are many cases where you know, the reality of a, a particular country will make the best scenario impossible. But clearly what you do in those sorts of cases is, is try and change the sort of rules of lineage or the, the, the underlying problem. I mean, it's like people say the same thing about sex selection. You know, uh, well, sex selection should be banned. Look what happens in India. You get all these... But in, in, the reason for that is that, that you can't be buried unless you have a son. And you have to pay large dowries if you have a girl. So there, there are background religious reasons and economic reasons for having males. So my argument is, let them have sex selection, but try and change those underlying... <laughs> that's, that's, that's what's really at root the problem, both the religious and the economic institutions that create the problem. And I think that's your example is just another one. Um, the, the, second, the second point... Your, just remind me the second point was... Reframing. Yeah, reframing. Um, uh, and, you, and the particular example that you used? Mormons. Mormons. This is a great example. Um, you, you may be right. In, in, in psychological terms, the way, what happens is determined by reframing. But here we can draw a distinction between the, the ethical and the psychological. Is polygamy wrong? Okay. It's, it's illegal for primarily religious reasons. Now, Tony, even Tony, I think, will come on board with me and say... There's no intrinsic problem with polygamy. If, if a woman wants to have several husbands and they all want to be her husband, what's the problem? Where's the problem? In fact, I know real-life cases of this where they're not formally married, but they live in this very satisfactory arrangement. So why would we want to outlaw that? So even if you thought there was some reason against you know, male polygamy, men having many wives you could at least allow women to have many husbands if that's what they wanted and the husbands wanted that as well. So, you know, here's an example where 
what everyone thinks is just a crazy practice and, you know, is quite legitimately outlawed, I don't see any strong reasons for outlawing it except religious ones. And it's amazing. I mean, I'm not defending the Mormon church at all, but I think this whole polygamy debate is just a symptom of how we inherit, you know, irrational practices from, you know, outdated religious kind See, of... And you say that reason isn't motivated by the passions. There actually is a wonderful set of arguments by Joe Henrik and Pushka and their colleagues showing that monogamous societies, on the whole, over time, especially in group, are much less violent than polygamous societies. <laughs> and the reason is simply because of their excess males running around the place, they cause havoc. But if every man is assured one wife, and you know that there's no competition, once the wife is granted, they tend to be more peaceful societies. So there seems to be a, and quite a lot more and more, of evidence yeah. for monogamy. But so, again, this is, you know, that may well have been true through our whole evolutionary history. Yes. The world that we're living in today is not the African savannah. And there are many ways in which you can deal with, with this issue. And indeed, it is an issue even without polygamy in terms of sex selection and you know, people using. So, I mean, you could, if that's your concern, one to one, a sufficient number of partners, you can simply incentivise a certain sex ratio. If you find that polygamy is somehow disturbing the availability of one sex for the other, you can deal with that. So, okay. yeah, sorry. Well. Yeah, there's just one last question. I'm afraid everybody else will have to um, have the, continue this outside in the uh, coffee room. Um, I, I think I'm going to be touching on, on similar lines to that. Um, I mean, in, in terms of the logic of, of the explanation of um, this efficient secular justification test, if you acknowledge that one thing religion does is create sort of so, social cohesion and cooperation, and that's potentially a public good, I mean, one of the greatest religion does that is through sort of costly signals um, that may cause individual harm. Um, at what point... You know, does how how you use that framework to draw the line where the benefits of a particular religious arrangement on group coordinated behavior might outweigh the costs or well, again, here I think you have to question whether social cohesion social cohesion was necessary in evolutionary terms to allow groups to stick together and, and compete with other groups. So you needed social. So like a, you know, barracking for your football team wasn't just a matter of the team winning; it was a matter of your group surviving. So we've got lots of institutions like supporting football teams and so on that you know uh, promote cohesion within that group. But it's just an open question whether in a globalised world today we want that same sort of tribal cohesion that you mean by group cohesion. Um, it's always alleged to have certain benefits. Uh, it's not clear whether those benefits can't be achieved in other more ethical ways. So this kind of mantra that social cohesion is a good thing well, it depends on exactly what you mean by social cohesion. I mean, when you go to the English soccer matches, it, what it means is you have one team beating up the other team often. And, you know, what it means is that, you know, we're less likely to care about strangers in distant countries because we're very socially cohesive here. So, you know, I, I, I'm not even sure that social cohesion is what we should be aiming at uh, in, in terms of a kind of justified secular morality. It may be. But they, I think we have to kind of challenge these sorts of things. Excellent. And on that note, we can go and battle it out over coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much.